If you haven't already, yeah, grab that Bible, because uh, we're going to go through chapter two together tonight. And as, as um, Bob said, it is an absolute, this letter of Ephesians is an absolute treasure trove. And one thing I've noticed thinking about chapter two is this thread like gold that goes through the first three chapters of Ephesians. So uh, I, love, I love a pattern. I love a repeat. And um, if you look at the theme here, you'll see from chapters one to three that Paul keeps talking about God's riches. So in chapter 1 verses 7 and 18, he talks about the riches of his grace, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And then in chapter 2 that we're looking at tonight, verse 4 and 7, he says, God is rich in mercy because of his great love. This, and he, he points to the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. And then on to chapter 3 verses 8 and 16, he talks about the unfathomable riches of Christ and then the riches of his glory and you see this thread going through particularly the first three chapters of this little letter and so before we go on and as we look um, in in more detail at chapter 2 I wanted to say two things one one is that many of us carry rather than living out of the riches of God we find ourselves living out of a sort of low-grade anxiety that there actually won't be enough we live in a mindset that is more one of poverty or scarcity or lack and for some of us, that is when we stop and think about it, something we've grown up with. Just this, this fear that there might not be enough. So for some of us, that's something we've been brought up with. For some of us, it could be circumstantial that at different times, especially in a culture that's often comparing, you look across and it makes you think, oh, I, I don't have that. And suddenly you start to live out of this feeling that you, you know, about uh, what, of what you haven't got. Is, is who I am, is what I've got enough. And so I just felt, when you think about Paul as he writes this, the context is Paul writing from prison. He's a prisoner. And yet, as you read through these chapters, you begin to tell he can't even find the words to express the riches of God. And what he wants to invite us into is this mind-boggling thought that God's riches are made available to us in Christ. And even from prison, where he could have thought, well, really, he was stripped, humanly speaking. He'd been stripped of everything. He is absolutely um, rooted in the truth that God is rich and that the riches of heaven are made available to him and to us in Christ. And there's this hinge moment. If you read the, through the whole letter of Ephesians, which is a very good idea, there's this hinge moment exactly halfway through at the beginning of chapter 4. And Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what that tells you is that the first three chapters are piling up stuff truths that you will need to know before you even start to wonder how you will live out the, the calling to which you've been called. So he wants you to be, to rest on the truth in chapters one to three, 
to make sure you are living out of that truth, that it's settled for you. As you begin to wonder, what, what does God want me to be doing? How am I going to live a life um, that reflects all the inheritance that is mine in Christ? So chapters 1 to 3 are about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And the takeaway from these chapters is to blow your mind as to what God is like and what he has done. And if you look at chapter 2 itself, you read those opening verses, and it could leave you feeling a bit ruffled. You may think, uh, well, I'm finding this slightly offensive. It would be offensive to my non-Christian friends or to non-Christians in my family that I'm basically um, telling them, you're as good as dead, my friend. You might, want, you might feel a bit ruffled because you think, well, before I was a Christian, I was actually quite a nice person. I wasn't a bad person. So it feels a bit heavy going to call me a, a son of disobedience. <laughs> you might think to yourself, well, I know loads of people who wouldn't call themselves Christians, but they actually feel like better people to me than lots of the Christians I know. So it's a bit over the top to be calling them children of wrath. So two important things, if that's... Uh, your response to those verses. One is that this is written for the church. This is written for the church. So it may well not be the first thing you need to tell uh, your brother or your sister who isn't yet a Christian. Uh, You have to take into account the context that this is a letter for the church. And then secondly, the point in the flow of the chapter is to set up two before and after scenarios, which we will look at in a minute. But Paul is purposefully contrasting one with the other to help us see the profound thing that God has done, because it helps us see what he's taken us from so that we can understand more of what he's invited us into. So I got to thinking about before and after stuff, and I browsed a bit on the internet before and after, and wondering what that would throw up. And it it threw up things like Botox, incredible pictures of before and after. Mind you, sometimes it had gone horribly wrong also. Makeovers, before and after, amazing. Teeth straightened, which actually was quite amazing. Incredible, staggering stories and pictures of before and after weight loss. And the last thing I noticed was home improvements, which were sort of come across as something of a miracle that before your driveway looked like this, and now it looks like that. It's amazing. It's wondrous. And actually, I began to think, wow, this is telling me something about what matters in our culture, what we give value to and prioritize um, in our culture. But actually, here is a story I found that is a bit shocking. So I'm giving you a little heads up there. This is a shocking and wonderful story about transformation. Have a look at this. He was out there. This tumor was growing. It was so hard for him, and I had no knowledge of him. And suddenly, our paths of our lives cross, and you become aware of this person who's been there all that time. frustrates me that what could have been a very basic surgery 
became a very difficult surgery because he couldn't access the care that he needed. There's a significant chance that you will not survive this operation. In the morning, we took the tube out, and he woke up and was giving us thumbs up, telling us he was okay. And then when he was awake enough, we showed him his face in the mirror. And I remember him taking his hand and reaching up to where the tumor used to be. It's like his hand stopped right here, like he didn't know how to put it past where the tumor was. And then eventually he realized he could keep going in. <laughs> Every human being has the right to be treated as human, to have a place at the table of the human race. Oh, and when you have been deprived that seat and it's offered to you again, you know, send money, have a seat. For him to be able to re-enter the human race, that's a fantastic thing. Well, I want to honor Kirsty Randall because she is serving with Mercy Ships right now and happens to be back for a couple of weeks between trips. But these guys are stewarding stories of transformation. And so thank you, Kirsty. Bless you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But for many of us, that's quite a shocking thing to see. And um, we sort of move from shock and, and uh, you know, don't really, you know, don't necessarily even want to watch that, to seeing this extraordinary transformation, this before and after, where we end up wondering, amazed at this kind of story. And I think this is the sort of before and after that Paul here is inviting us into. And again, if you love a pattern, in um, this chapter, in, in verses 2 and 3, Paul says, formally this, and formally that. And then at verse 4, he says, but God. That's 1 to 10. And then it repeats itself again in 11 to 22. So again, you get in verse 11, formally. And then again in 13, formally, but now. So this chapter sets itself up as two halves and two stories of before and after. And let's look at 1 to 10 briefly first. Now in the normal run of things, I think it's fair to say, we are alive and then we're dead. So it is a shocker from the beginning that Paul says, no, we are dead and made alive. And a really good summary of this, um, do you know um, Tim Keller? Some of you will have heard of Tim Keller. He says this, he says, this is the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So what is it that has happened to bring us from this rather shocking scenario of before into this rather glorious after? 
um, scenario. Now, let me just say one other thing. That is between 1 and 10, if you've heard uh, from me before, you'll know that I love a Bible sandwich. What I mean by that is um, a repeat that holds within it something you need to know. So, for example, here in verse 2, you get this, formally, you walked according to the course of this world. So, formally, you were walking in one direction. And then in verse 10, it says again, but now you are walking in the works, in the things God has lined up for you to do. So do you see, that's a sandwich. And it, and it tells you that in the middle, something important has happened. Because you were walking this way, and now you are walking. You are living out your life based on something utterly other. And in the middle, it's, it's um, fun to me that um, you are being told to sit down. You're walking, then it says, you've been seated and then you're off walking again by verse 10. So the before scenario is painting this picture of us um, before we have found ourselves in Christ, we're, that we're alienated from God, we're disconnected from God, we're living independent of the source of life. And if you know that story in Genesis, you'll know we're designed to walk with God in relationship to him. We're designed to know him. And that leads to life. And apart from that connection, Paul says, you are heading towards unlife. You're heading away from life. You're heading towards death. And apart from that connection, he says, and this is a little bit startling, you're not in some kind of vacuum. If you say, well, I'm not choosing to come under the reign and rule of Jesus, I'm, 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 um, you know, I'm, I'm free to make my own choices. What Paul is saying is, don't delude yourself. According to Paul, there are only two options. Either we're walking with God or we're walking according to the purposes, the, the, the powers in the world that oppose God. So if we live with anything but Jesus Christ at the center, we are not doing whatever the hell I like. We are actually shaped and even enslaved by forces that are leading us away from God and away from life. So some of us will look back at uh, before we met Jesus, before we became a Christian. And we'll see darkness, we'll see destruction, we'll see death. That won't come as a surprise to us. But for others of us, we were simply drifting away from God. We were drifting with the currents of the culture apart from God. And, and that probably without realizing it. But what Paul wants you to know is whichever of those two is the truth. You need CPR. <laughs> you need the intervention of God in Christ. And one thing about being dead is that you can't revive yourself. You need outside help. And so verse 4 is the best news you'll ever hear. But God. But God. We needed a miraculous, powerful intervention. 
Because if you're dead, you don't see it, you don't hear it, you, you are unresponsive to the possibility of life. So verses 4 to 7 lay out two things. One, what is God like? And two, what has he done? So what is God like? If you look at those verses between 4 and 7, you learn some incredible truths about God. That he is rich in mercy. That he is bursting with great love. That he is immeasurably gracious. And that his kindness is indescribable. Now those things about God, that he is merciful, that he is loving, that he is gracious and that he is kind, are all poured into what he has done in Christ. Now back in chapter 1 verse 20, we were told that he, God raised Jesus and seated him forever in this age and in the age to come, far above all rule and power, authority and dominion. In other words, he was raised up far above the things that pull us away from life and into death. But, and, so, and so Paul does take chapter 1 to blast you with the power of God. But then something else happens in chapter 2, and he blasts you, not just with the extent of God's power, but with the extent of his grace. Because he hasn't just raised up Jesus and seated him in heavenly places, he's made you alive in Christ. He's raised you up with him. He seated you with Jesus. So he hasn't just freed us. He hasn't just reconnected us to himself. He's actually given us honor and power. He's promoted us to where Jesus is, which is almost incomprehensible. It's so good. And Paul actually invents three verbs here when he says he has um, made us alive with, he's raised us up with, he's seated us with. He actually combines different wor words into verbs that didn't even exist before then because it was so important that we understand that it is in Christ and with him being made mysteriously and amazingly one with Christ that we are made alive, that we are raised with him, that we are seated in heaven. So we are given life, but we are also recreated as powerful agents of God's kingdom on earth. That's what God's done. And what prompted him to intervene is not a response to something you did. You were dead. It's because of who he is. And verse 10 talks about these good works that God lines, for, lines up for us to do. And it's so important for us that we understand it's not, we don't do good works to become a Christian we don't do good works to kind of get into favor with God. We do good works because we are Christians. So even the works, the good things we get to do are a gift of God. You're not saved by doing good things. You're saved 
to do good things. They're lined up for you. So what's the other before and after all about in verses 11 to 22? If, if Paul has established that you were aliens, you were estranged from God, but in Christ you've been brought near, you've been reconnected with God, now he's going to tell you something else, which is before you were estranged from one another. But now relationships get healed and made whole in Christ. Remember, he says in verse 12, before you were strangers and aliens. And then by verse 19, you, you see him simply say, you are no longer those things. You are no longer strangers and aliens. And again, something must have happened in between that is dramatic, that is real, that has actually changed something in a powerful way. Because he reminds these Gentiles that previously they were outsiders, they were excluded. It's, 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 it's living without the security of citizenship in God's kingdom. So I was born in the United Kingdom, but I was reborn as a citizen, I was handed citizenship in God's kingdom. And when human empires rise up and fall, my citizenship in the kingdom of God is absolutely sure. Same comes along when he talks about being a stranger. These were you, like us, many of us were living without that sense of trust and belonging that comes from being in not just any family, but God's family. You were far from him and far from each other, says Paul. But because of the kindness and mercy and grace and sheer love of God, he has done something which cost him everything. But it means that you become a citizen of heaven. You are now part of God's family. And a bit of a shocker, knowing a tiny bit of context about this letter, there was a background of hostility and division and contempt between these people groups, Jews and Gentiles. And there was a saying among some of the Jews that Gentiles were created to be fuel for the fires of hell. It was actually unlawful for um, someone to help a Gentile who was a Gentile woman struggling in labor because it would be a wrong thing to do to help bring another Gentile into the world. So things had got quite twisted in terms of divisions and hatred and hostility between these two groups. And the temple itself, which had been built by Herod the Great in Jerusalem and was still standing in all probability when Paul was writing these letters, it actually had a, a wall around it that was to keep the Gentiles out. <laughs> and it had signs on that wall threatening you on pain of death if foreigners came in past that point. Oddly enough, in 1935, they excavated one of those signs. Now, what that means is, it, this is a mind-blowing change. 
that we're talking about here. In Christ Jesus and by his blood, you who were once outsiders get to come in. You who were were kept out have access. There's no distinction. That dividing wall has been blasted away and the hostility between people has been put to death in his flesh. Now, I don't know if I understand that fully, <laughs> but I think, well, it, 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 it may have something to do with that. Jesus Christ, as he came to the cross, he faced and took into himself the hostility, the hatred, the contempt of the world that put him there. And and by doing that, he broke the power of it. He released us from it so that we never have to live shaped by those divisions and hostilities again. In himself, he is our peace. What was once divided is one in him. Where there was once hostility, now there is peace. And it's not like one of those, I don't know if you've ever watched Blind Date or... You're probably too young for that. But um, there was a sort of partition wall at certain points in it. And then suddenly this wall would drop down. And you, you were either like, oh, my goodness, thank goodness I chose you. Or you're like, oh, Flip, what are you doing here? How did you even get onto this show kind of thing? But this is not, this is not what we're talking about. The dividing wall comes down. And actually, you're not just finding yourself shoulder to shoulder with someone different from you. You are actually being made one in Christ as a whole other ballgame. So, you are citizens in Christ, equal in the kingdom of God and under the dominion of Jesus and you have become a member, and household has become a whole, a whole big deal, hasn't it, in COVID. But you, have, you are part of God's household. He is the father of all, and you are therefore surrounded by brothers and sisters. And this amazing thing demolishes insecurity. It heals insecurities. It heals that sense of rootlessness that so much um, of the culture suffers with. Insecurity and rootlessness, bang, gone, dealt with. Because you are secure, you belong in Christ. So I just wanted to get you to look lastly at that last little verse, 21. Uh, that talks about this idea about the temple, which had once become a means of separating people and keeping people out. Paul's saying something really shocking. And that is that those of you who were outsiders, who were actually kept out, you are now the temple. You are now, in Christ, the place where God will dwell. And as you are together in him, joined together, held together in Christ, Jesus will grow that building. You yourselves become, and together, 
become the dwelling place for God in the spirit. So it's pretty amazing stuff, really. (laughs) And um, what I'd love to do uh, is have a little time to pray that Jesus will sort of show us again what it is he's done and who he is. And uh, that we will live in the good of that. So let's stand for a moment. I'll just speak over you again. Just uh, be at home if this is something you're not used to. We're just going to bless you and invite you if you would like to receive prayer or just use this time to let the Holy Spirit um, cause the truth to seep down deeper into yourself so that you will live out of it. So God, we just speak over one another tonight, your kindness, your mercy, your very great love, and your grace. Lord, you've taken us into yourself. You've made us um, your body. So we just praise you, Jesus. Release here tonight a new understanding of what it is to be made a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Release here tonight a sense of what it is to be made part of the kingdom of heaven, to be made part of the family of God. Nothing to do with what we get right. Nothing to do with our status or credibility in this world. Because of who he is. You've made us alive in you, Jesus. Thank you.